Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, brethren. I guess I'm also emotional. I had to wipe a tear from my eye as I listened to that uh, beautiful, beautiful contribution of special music. I think it's just amazing to see our young people, uh, how beautiful you are, and how willing you are to contribute to the work of God. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thank you to all of the brethren who are here today who are sacrificing for God. You know, as I was preparing this message, I've taken a slightly different approach than what I would normally do. And in the back of my mind, I'm wondering, is this the right approach? And after going through the day today, it's clear to me that this is what God wants us to hear. And uh, started with the youth study, which was just amazing to sit in the youth study and see, Sister Lisa, how much effort you put into not only preparing it, but actually engaging our young people in that study and making it so clear. And, and in fact, for our adults who missed the study, it really was part one of a two-part message today. Because where the youth study stopped is exactly where I want to begin. And Sister Lisa actually drew out a, a time chart that took the young people right up to when Nehemiah came to Jerusalem. And that's where I'm going to begin in my sermon. And the uh, sermonette, thank you, Brother Paul, for blessing us with your message. Certainly a very important message. And showing how these men, because of the importance to them, of bringing the word of God to God's people, were willing to be martyred. And that speaks to commitment, which is what I want to speak to, uh, speak on today. And then, uh, Brother Gord, thank you for stepping up and leading us in the hymns so, so uh, admirably and masterfully. And again, the hymns that you chose about building Zion and holy mighty majesty, and unless the Lord shall build the house, completely tie into what we're covering today. And so certainly thank all of you in the opening prayer as well. Uh, brethren, we are becoming a congregation that is fitly framed together. And our guests from Kitchener, we welcome you and consider you part of our family. And certainly you're welcome to join us at any time. But the church is really on the move. And like any vehicle that's on the move, sometimes things go wrong. And it's necessary to pull over and fix those things that go wrong. Uh, a time study was done of a gentleman who had to pull over and change his tire on the side of the road. And there were a number of things that he had to do. First of all, he had to figure out what was wrong and determine that the tire needed to be changed. He then needed to locate and put the jack together. He needed to clear the trunk and remove the tire, to raise the jack, then attempt to loosen the lugs only to realize that they were rusted on, he then lowered the jack, stomped on the tire iron to loosen the lugs, and then raised the jack back up. He then loosened, thank you, he then loosened and removed the tire, placed the spare tire on and tightened it, and then put away the jack and the flat tire. That whole process took him 47 minutes. So then he could get back on his way. Compare that to a NASCAR team, a pit crew, that when the racing vehicle, it has to pull over, it can't keep going without a pit stop, 
Otherwise, it will just it will lose the race because things go wrong. So a, a NASCAR pit crew, it says this in Wikipedia. In motorsports, a pit stop is where a racing vehicle stops in the pits during a race for refueling. New tires, repairs, mechanical adjustments, a driver change, or any combination of the above. In any racing series that permits scheduled pit stops, pit strategy becomes one of the most important features of the race. In fact, I heard a racer say, the cars are so fast now that it's difficult to pass a car on the track. Where you win is in the pit stop. So the faster the, the vehicle can get in and out of the pit stop, the more likely it is to win the race. It says here, this is because a car, a race car traveling at 100 miles per hour, or 160 kilometers per hour, will travel approximately 150 feet or 45 meters per second. So every second that they're in the pit stop, their, comp their competition is gaining ground on them. During a 10 second pit stop, a car's competitors will gain approximately one quarter mile, about half a kilometer over the stopped car. And so we go from 47 minutes with a pit crew to 10 seconds. And that, with 47 minutes is changing one tire, a pit crew changes all four, refuels and does a number of other things all inside of 10 seconds. And the people participating in a pit crew include the rear jack, the backup rear jack, the front jack, the backup front jack, the rear tire off, two rear tire offs, two rear tires on, two front tires off, two front tires on, two stabilizers, a t two tire gunners, a stop marker, two stop markers, the driver, obviously, and the lollipop man. And the lollipop man, you think he's got nothing to do. He, he carries, basically, it's a big stick with a circle on the top, looks like a lollipop. And all he does is lower it to say, the, you may not now start. And then he lifts it to tell the driver that he can be on his way. That's all he does. If he is a fraction of a second off, the whole car will go up in flames because they're dealing with gasoline and high, a lot of heat and it's just high risk. So every single person has to do their job with precision and speed and focus. This is not unlike the church. That as a congregation, we are a team. And we have to learn to work together. And when you see these guys, to do a pit stop in under 10 seconds, you can't be getting in each other's way. You can't be telling somebody else what their job is. Everybody needs to know exactly what they need to do, and they need to do it. And we all, we all need to rely on each other that everybody's going to do their part. So here we are, coming up to six months as a new community of believers. And we've accomplished a lot because of our teamwork. After the feast, we're going to be changing gears where our roadmap, and I, I didn't bring it up with me, but in our roadmap, we say that our mission is to prepare God's people for marriage to Christ. That is our mission. Here at this uh, NASCAR race, their mission is to win the race. We're running a different, much more important race. 
And our mission is to prepare God's people for marriage to Christ. And so we have to edify one another. But that's just part of the mission. The other part of the mission, we say, is to preach the gospel, to work locally to preach the gospel to all nations. So we have a commission to preach the gospel to all nations. But we here in CGI Burlington are saying our mission is to work locally. So we're not going to get on a plane and fly to Kenya to preach the gospel in Kenya. That's outside of our scope. But if there are Kenyans here in Burlington, we will preach the gospel to them here. We're going to work locally to preach the gospel to all nations. So this is our mission. And after the feast, we're going to be focusing much more on the evangelistic side of our mission without neglecting our responsibility and desire to edify one another. So we're going to continue to edify one another, but we're going to have a focus on evangelism. And Brother uh, Pastor Murray uh, has uh, spoken to the board and has gotten approval for our budget for evangelism. So we now have a budget for the rest of the year for evangelism, and so we'll need to come up with our strategy for evangelistic efforts, and we want to do that together as a team. And then our, our board member, as we vote, we'll, we'll finalize our voting for our board member next week on our Super Sabbath, and we'll ask that board member to then negotiate our budget for next year. But we do have a budget secured for the rest of the year, and so we can begin our evangelistic efforts. That will, that will happen after the feast. We, right now, so we've been in edification, uh, building mode. We're now in feast mode, getting ready for the holy days. And then after the holy days, we want to take on our responsibility to evangelize. So for the sermon today, I want to look at the importance of teamwork as we undertake our mission and the work of God. And I want to do this, as I said, by looking at the community the post-exilic community under Nehemiah. And this will be very um, a natural flow for our young people. It will continue right along from the study that we had earlier. But before we go to Nehemiah, let's go where the young people were today in Haggai 1, just to give some context. Haggai 1. <coughs> Haggai 1 and verse 1 where it says, In the second year of Darius the king, so we'll remember just by way of a reminder, uh, the southern kingdom was taken captive by Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar went in, destroyed the, the, uh, the nation of Judah, took them away captive, and that was in, uh, uh, he was being used as a tool to punish the Jews um, for their rebellion against God. And then Cyrus the Great was uh, next, and he destroyed Belshazzar's kingdom and took over and then permitted the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And here in Haggai 1, verse 1, in the second year of Darius, the king of Persia, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. So this is uh, in the royal line of David, and so he is the ruler of Judah at this time, which was uh, covered in the youth study. And the people had stopped building the temple because there was opposition. 
and here the word of the Lord comes to Haggai the prophet and to, and to Zerubbabel and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest so we have governor and high priest the leaders of Judah at this time verse 2 thus says the Lord this is God speaking to his people these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord this was their mindset. They are in Jerusalem. They've been in captivity. They've returned to Jerusalem. And the house of God, the temple of God, needs to be rebuilt. That God's glory can be in his house and be a blessing to all the nations. And these people said, the time hasn't come yet to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house, this house lies in ruins. Where are your priorities here? The house of God lies in ruins and you're preoccupied with your paneled houses. As long as you're fine, you neglect the house of God. Can we talk, brethren? Can I? Permission to speak bluntly. The house of God today is in ruins. And when I say the house of God, I don't mean CGI. I mean the church of God. The church of God today is in ruins. The house of God is in ruins. Where are our priorities? Is it okay for us that the house of God is in ruins? As long as we have a job, we have a car, we have a place to live, we have food on the table, we have a place to sleep. As long as all of that's looked after, who cares? about the state of the church of God. And God contended with his own people because they had this attitude that as long as they're okay, it doesn't really matter. It's not yet time to rebuild the house of God. We have to have a mindset that pleases God, a mindset that God will bless, that we say the time is now to rebuild the house of God. We need to have a pit stop pull in the church of God and rebuild it so that we can get on with the work that God has for us to do, much of which will be in the millennium. But if we have an attitude like this, we won't be in the millennium. The church of God will be in the millennium, we just won't be there. God wants people who are committed, as we heard in the sermonette, willing to withstand opposition. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Verse 5. Well, let's drop down to verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And God repeats this. He wants them to think about what they're doing. Go up to the hills and bring wood. Get to work and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. The temple needs to be rebuilt so that the glory of the Lord can be in the temple and the whole world can glorify God. And the temple of God today, the church of God, is not glorifying God. If I was not in the church, and I met my brother, Gord, and he told me he's in the church, and I said, well, what church is it? And he tells me. And I do a little bit of research on the Church of God International. And then I do some history, and I say, oh, it came from the Worldwide Church. And then I do some more research and see all the groups that came out of Worldwide. I'd come back and I would laugh in his face. And I'd say, is this, is, is this, you call this the church of God? 
it, I'm sorry, I don't want to offend anybody. But we have churches and mosques and other organizations, secular organizations, NASCAR race drivers, who are doing far greater work than the church of God. I'm sorry if I offend anybody. Let's face facts. The house of God lies in ruins. We need to consider our ways. And we need to rebuild the house of God. Let's now turn to Nehemiah. Where in the story flow, because of Haggai's prophecy, the people of God get back to work. And they finish the temple. The house of God is rebuilt. Unfortunately, they stopped there. They rebuilt the temple, but they didn't rebuild the wall around Jerusalem to protect the temple. Nehemiah did not go back to Jerusalem. He was in Persia, and he was a man of <coughs> status. He served the king directly as the king's cupbearer. And if we pick it up, Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, I should mention just before I go here, that when they rebuilt the temple, or sorry, when they rebuilt the foundation for the temple, there was a great noise. The noise was so great, and it came because half the people were so happy that the foundation was laid. They rejoiced. The other half cried out in agony. Because they remembered the first temple. And when they looked at what was being rebuilt, it broke their heart. But half the people were happy about what has happened. So, you know, we can interpret this two ways. One is, the people who were rebuilding the temple had no idea what Solomon's temple looked like. So they were happy that they were doing something great. Whereas the other people who were older... They actually knew what the temple looked like and how glorious it was. And so it was heartbreaking. Or we could say, that half that cried just wasn't willing to move on with the times. That things change. And, and we can't expect to rebuild what was in the past. We have to deal with what we're dealing with now. And maybe there's some truth to both sides. We're not trying to rebuild the worldwide church of God. It did a great work. It was worldwide. And it started with one man. So we can't say because we're a small group, oh, there's not much that we can accomplish. If we work as a team, and we have God's Spirit working with us, there's no limit to what we can accomplish. So let's not think small. Let's, let's allow God to do His work. But we know that God wants His temple rebuilt. He wants to be glorified. And where we are now, brethren is most of the churches, I think, Kitchener, Toronto, Burlington, Jamaica, are probably four notable exceptions of church congregations that have young people. Most of the congregations, to find somebody under 60, will be a challenge. Most of the congregations are aging, and they're not being replenished by young people. So people who were around in worldwide days are holding on to this truth. But that's all we're doing is holding on. We, we don't have vital congregations that are evangelizing and bringing in new blood and, and, and holding on to showing our young people how beautiful this way of life is. 
and having them participate. We need this. We need our young people to be fully integrated into what we're doing and taste how beautiful this way of life is. And so the temple had mixed reviews. But once they finished the temple, they stopped. And so news comes now to Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, or Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So they've come from Judah to Persia. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. So they've rebuilt the temple, but they're in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So we know that Nebuchadnezzar went in and just completely destroyed Jerusalem. And here the wall is still broken down, and its gates were destroyed by fire. Nehemiah's response. So look at the, we saw in Haggai that the people, as long as they were in paneled houses, life is good. The temple is in ruins, but they were in paneled houses. So it was good. Here the temple is rebuilt, but the wall has not been rebuilt to protect the temple. And Nehemiah says here, verse 4, As soon as, as soon as I heard these words, so his brother comes back, what's happening in Jerusalem? And as soon as he hears these words, he sat down and wept and mourned for days. This was devastating to this man who's wealthy. He's living a good life. He sees the king every day. And, and he's, he has no want or need. And when he hears the state of Jerusalem, as soon as he hears these words, he sat down and wept and mourned for days and continued in fasting and praying before the Lord. And again, we heard in the special music the power of prayer. Nehemiah understood the power of prayer. And we're going to see through here a number of decisions that he has to make. And we see he's a man of prayer. He relies on God to help him make these decisions. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He was gutted by this. He could not believe it. These people have been away for so long. And you're telling me they haven't rebuilt the wall? What are they thinking? What are they doing? Nehemiah is devastated. Chapter 2. And verse 1. In the month of Nisan... In the 20th year of Arcturus, when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. That was his job, to make sure the king would not be poisoned. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. So Nehemiah was a very optimistic man, was never sad in the king's presence. But this time he was depressed. He was just completely forlorn. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing that you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Listen, when, when the king of Persia says that to you, if you are his cupbearer, and he turns to you and says, you look a bit distracted, 
Is there something more important to you than protecting me? That should send chills through you. So Nehemiah could not help it. He was so devastated that even though he's serving the king wine, he can't help but, but show this remorse. Then I was very much afraid. My life is at stake now. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? It lies in ruins. And its gates have been destroyed by fire. So this again must be our attitude when we see where the church is. There's so much division in the church. You know, because you're in Church of God International, and maybe I'm in United Church, we can't talk to each other? This, this is ruins. The church lies in ruins. Verse 4. The king said to me, what are you requesting? And so again, he's a man of prayer, so I pray to the God of heaven. So the king's asking him a question. It doesn't mean he goes off and does you know, an hour's worth of prayer and then comes back. In the moment, he prays before he answers. And then in verse 5, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah didn't say, Well, I'm only one person. Uh, this is impossible. Oh, well. He took it upon himself. I will go to Jerusalem, and I will rebuild the wall. And so if you would give me permission... I'll go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So Nehemiah is a man with a deadline. I give the king a deadline. I will be back within this period of time. That means when he gets to Jerusalem, he has no time to waste. He has to get that wall rebuilt and then come back to the king. As, as promised. Verse 10. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, heard this, it displeased them greatly. So we have two very different hearts here. One heart that is completely committed to rebuilding the wall, and another that hears that if the rebuilding effort is going to take place, they are displeased. So in Jerusalem at this time, we have the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were put there by the Assyrians. They come from the northern tribes, and the Assyrians mix them with all other Gentile peoples. And so the Samaritans are this mixed breed that serve Yahweh, but have their own mixed up religion. And... Sanballat and Tobiah are in some sort of leadership position here in Jerusalem, and Nehemiah threatens their leadership. And so they don't, they don't like Nehemiah. So it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So they're in leadership roles, but they're unhappy that somebody's come to seek the welfare of Israel. And I think we need to be prepared for this, brethren, that when we commit ourselves to seeking the welfare of the people of God. Don't expect everybody to rejoice. Don't expect everybody to be patting us on the back and saying, great job. We've got to expect some opposition. 
And that's what Nehemiah faced. Let's see this beginning in chapter 3. Actually, no, in chapter 3. It's a long chapter. We won't go through all of it. But what you see in chapter 3 is Nehemiah understanding how a pit stop works. Everybody has to have their role. And if everybody has their role and they're clear about their role and they're clear about the vision, we can get in and out and get the work done quickly. So as you go through Nehemiah 3, it begins, Then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors and consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. And it goes through and it just shows how building this wall, everybody had their part. You know, not everybody can be the lollipop man. Not everybody can be a stabilizer. Not everyone can be a gunner. They all had their role. Even you'll see here in verse 12, next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, so he was in a, a leadership role, he did the repairs. He and his daughters. And so I know some of us have difficulty with our young ladies participating in the service. Young ladies are welcome to participate in the service. And, and we did a study on this, which you're welcome to look at uh, on, our, on our website, that covers exactly what it means when the scripture says women should be silent. And it's not what we think it means. And so here you see even the women, the daughters were participating in this rebuilding effort. So it goes through and every single verse shows who had what part of the wall uh, in the rebuilding effort and how they worked as a team. And then if you go to chapter 4, and verse 6, so we built the wall. We worked as a team and we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. So they were halfway, but the whole, you could see the whole wall all around Jerusalem was fully joined, just to half its height. They still had the second half to do. Verse 14. And I looked and arose. So again, I just want to under, underscore in chapter 3, the teamwork. They weren't getting in each other's way. Everybody knew their role, and the wall was rebuilt to half, to half its height. Uh, because, notice this, for the people had a mind to work in verse 6. The people had a mind to work. And this is the question we have to ask ourselves. Do we have a mind to work? Do we see the work that needs to be done, first of all? Do we see it? Because sometimes when you have rubble around you a long time, you just stop seeing it. You don't see it anymore. Somebody else comes in and they're shocked, but you stop seeing it. So do we see the ruins? And then do we care? And then, do we have a mind to work? Not everybody cares. And in the youth study, it was shown how there were people who came to help build the temple. And the, the Jews said, no, you have no part in this. You, you don't have the same mindset that we do. And it was revealed that when they were turned away, they became hostile. They became adversaries. And so we don't want everybody. We don't need everybody. We need a committed few and the Spirit of God. That's what we're looking for. People who have a mind to work. Verse 14 of chapter 4. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them, 
Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And brethren, this is the fight we are in. Satan hates the church of God. Satan has a mind to destroy the church of God. And he's done a very good job. We have to fight for our brothers, for our sisters, for our daughters, for our sons. We need to rebuild the church of God. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. So everyone knew exactly what his part of the work was. And when the enemies came and threatened, God foiled the enemies, they returned to their work. Not getting in each other's way, but understanding the overall vision, what they can achieve together. Now let's look at some of the challenges, additional challenges, that Nehemiah had to face. First, there's always external threats. Look at verse 11. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So the resentment was so strong, the hostility was so intense, these people came to kill the people of God in order to stop the work. Verse 12. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, Ten times you must return to us. They're going to kill you. We've heard it. Stop the work. Come back. Verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows, or their bows, sorry. No, we will not stop this work. This work is so, it's more important than our lives. We will, we will be living sacrifices, we will, we will allow ourselves to, to be killed if we have to. We will not stop this work. Verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters. Sorry, I read this. Um, verse 16. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, verse 17, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. This is showing us, brethren, people with a very clear vision. People who will not be interrupted. And whatever obstacle comes, we will continue the work. We may have to take new measures, but we will continue the work. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. Their, their lives were at risk, and they didn't run. They built, and they had their swords strapped to their side. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great, and notice this, and widely spread. This is the key. We, we have great work to do. But if it's widely spread, that every week we say our vision is this actively serving, dynamic, congregational family. Actively serving. We don't have brethren who come and just sit down and do nothing. 
everybody does something because the work is great. The work is great, but it's widely spread. And we are separated on the wall, far from one another. So because of how they were laid out, you know, from one end to the other, they were very far apart. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So they were just taking, uh, putting in place a mechanism that they could communicate. So when you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem. So don't go back home. Sleep in Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So, so the work just is non-stop. It's just continuous. Verse 23. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his hand. This, this is amazing. These are people who initially were not doing anything. They allowed the, the uh, Jerusalem to be in, in ruins. The temple was rebuilt, but the wall was not. And Nehemiah came and just gave them a very clear vision and sense of purpose. And they rallied. And here you see them sleeping in Jerusalem, sleeping with their weapons. Half are, half are, are guarding, half are building. Even the ones that are building have their sword. They're ready to defend because they have such a clear vision of what needs to be done. And we need to have this clear vision as we rebuild the church of God. Now, those are external threats. And they took, method, they took uh, means to address the external threats. Notice now, those are not the only threats that they faced. Beginning in chapter 5. Beginning in chapter 5. Verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives. Against who? Against Sanballat? Against the enemies of God? Who was this great outcry? It was a great outcry. Against who? Against their Jewish brothers. Uh-oh. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain, that we may eat and keep alive. So there's a famine in the land at this time. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. So while the famine is going on, the king of Persia raises taxes. And so you don't mess with your taxes. So they want to pay the king's taxes, but they have to borrow money to do this. And they have to borrow money from their Jewish brethren. And the Jewish brethren are charging usury. And they're enslaving the people. And they, some of them are not even walk, working on the wall. They are looking after themselves. They have crops. And they're selling the crops. But because there's a famine, the price of the crops go up. And so it's to the point where Jews are giving their sons and daughters to other Jews in slavery to pay their debts. And so it gets them, and they're trying to rebuild the wall, but these Jews are taking advantage of their own brothers. Verse 6. So the news comes to this outcry, comes to Nehemiah, and he was very angry when he heard their outcry and these words. He was furious. Couldn't believe it. 
And he says here in verse 7, I took counsel with myself. So he didn't respond right away. He thought about it, probably prayed about it. And then I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. So he wasn't afraid of power. He was willing to speak truth to power. He wasn't afraid of them. And he said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. So these are the leaders in Jerusalem. He brings a great assembly together and he challenges these leaders in front of the assembly. And so, verse 8. I said to them, we are, as far as we are able, have bought, bought back our Jewish brothers and have been sold to the nations. But, even, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. And so they, they repent. He gets them to repent and to release the, the bondage. Now, so there's the external threats, there's internal uh, abuse, and then in verse 14, there's also the threat of poor leadership. And Nehemiah demonstrates this in verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, and from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. So as, as governor, he was given a daily food allowance, and he never touched it. He let the brethren have that. It was his right, but he never touched it for 12 years. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. So, so they had, as governor, they could tax the people, and this is what the previous governors did. Even their servants lorded it over the people. So even the servants of the governors lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. So he's, he's telling these nobles, I have a right as governor to collect money and to live well. But I don't do that. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men. So in addition to not taking any money, he fed 150 people. Jews and officials beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared, now what was prepared at my expense for each day, so this is out of his own expense, and he explains then what he did every day out of his own pocket, because the service was too heavy on this people. So Nehemiah really had vision and was really committed to rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. And even at his own expense, he made sure that the people were looked after. Whereas the other governors, even though the wall was destroyed, the other governors came in and taxed the people so that they could live well, even though Jerusalem is in ruins. Nehemiah comes on the scene, and he, the only thing on his mind, we must rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And, and in that way, rebuild the people. Beginning in chapter 6 now, we see another threat. And I call this the threat of distraction. So as we, as we go about doing God's work, Satan will try to distract us. And what does distraction look like? Chapter 6 and verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I built the wall... And that there was no breach left in it, so all the way around it was connected. Although up to that time I had not yet set up the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshep sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together, 
at Hekat Thurim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. So I knew that this, they were just calling me out so that they could kill me. And I sent messages to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. So yeah, maybe another time. I'm busy. I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. So they're trying to distract Nehemiah from the work. And no doubt, we will get distractions. But I think if we all have a mind to work, and we're committed to rebuilding the church, then we're not going to allow ourselves to be distracted. Beginning in verse 6, we now deal with the threat of false accusations. So what, what people will say about us. Verse 6. Here's what they said about Nehemiah. Uh, this letter was sent by Sanballat now. When they saw that he wouldn't come down, they wrote a letter. And in it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's what you're doing. You're rebuilding the wall so that you can mount a rebellion against the king of Persia. And that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports... You wish to become their king. You, you want to go and you want to conquer Persia. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. That there is a king in Judah. So they're saying in the letter, Nehemiah, you have sent out prophets to tell everybody that you are king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come. And let us take counsel together. So you better work with us. Because if you're going to mount a rebellion against the king. You're in big trouble. Verse 9. Sorry, verse 8. Then I sent to him saying. No such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. So this is coming out of your own imagination. All these false accusations. You have no facts. These are just coming out of your mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. So, brethren, if we take up this mantle and really set our mind to work, and God blesses what our hand, as he has so far, that we are not doing this. There's no way what we have done in six months, there's no way we could do this. God is doing it. And who knows what more he will do we say in our roadmap, we want to be a model congregation. We want our congregation to inspire other congregations. We want them to outperform us when they're inspired by us. But who knows what people will say. Oh, you're trying to be king in Judah. This is coming out of their imagination, and no, we will not stop. Because we've set our minds to rebuild. There's also here, brethren, beginning in verse 10, the threat of deception. The threat of deception. Verse 10, now when I went into the house of Shimea, the son of Deliah, son of Mephetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let's meet inside the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, because they're coming to kill you. So you are in big trouble. They do not want this work done. They're going to come and kill you. I've got an idea. 
Let's go inside the temple, we'll lock the doors, and we can meet there. That way you'll be safe. <clears throat> but I said, such, such a man as I run away? And what man should, such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. So I, I'm, not do, I'm not concerned about myself. I'm concerned about the glory of God. And if I go into the temple and I'm not a priest, I'm going to violate the temple. So that contradicts my whole purpose for being here. I'm here to restore the glory of God. And you want me to defile the temple. I will not go in. Verse 12. And then I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. So they hired this guy to trick and deceive Nehemiah, threaten him, and out of fear, have him go into the temple. Verse 13. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, no idea. Well, doesn't say what she did, but she obviously was against him. Uh, you know, prophetesses can be just as wicked as prophets, false prophets. We can have false prophetesses. And the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So, all of this, Nehemiah, basically, the church, is in a pit stop. We need to rebuild Jerusalem so we can get on with the work. And because of the teamwork, instead of taking 47 minutes to change one tire, with teamwork you can change four and do other things in 10 seconds. Here, Nehemiah promised the king, let me go back to Jerusalem. Let me rebuild the wall and I'll be back by this date. So he's a man on a deadline. But he understood, he even said, I will rebuild the wall. He didn't mean I personally will lay brick upon brick. He meant I will galvanize God's people and get them to recommit passionately to rebuilding Jerusalem. And how long did it take in this pit stop? So the wall, had, the wall was just lying in ruins for decades. How long did it take to rebuild it when the people set their mind to work? Verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Eloah, or Elul, in 52 days. 52 days. That's what happens when we have a clear vision, when everybody does their piece, and people have a mind to work, and we don't allow ourselves to be distracted, we don't allow ourselves to be afraid, we don't entertain false accusations, we just do the work. It can be done in 52 days. So, this is a great example that we see here in this post-exilic community and it really shows us what can happen when we work together as a team as we wind down here let's just look at Nehemiah 7 and again just emphasizing teamwork we all have a, a role to play but let's play the right role because when the, when the NASCAR racer comes into the pit stop, the pit stop crew, they don't get in each other's way. They don't argue. They don't try to fight each other to see who should be doing what. They all know their role. 
And because of that, the driver can get in, get out, and win the race. And the race, the race is won in the pit stop. Nehemiah 7, verse 5. And my God put it into my heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people. So, so the wall is rebuilt. And now I want to gather the people together, the, the leaders, that they might be reckoned by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of them which came up at the first and found written therein. Verse 6. These are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity and of those that had been carried away whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and came again to Jerusalem, to Judah, everyone unto his city. So when they returned, they all went back to their cities. Drop down to verse 63. So he goes through, he's going through the genealogy of all the leaders just to make sure that everybody's from the tribes and they understand everybody's lineage. And then verse 63. And the priests. And now we come to the priests. The children of Habiah, the children of Koz, the children of Barzillai, which took one of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, to wife, and was called after their name. So I'm not sure who she was, but obviously Nehemiah is not pleased. These, all of these priests, sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but it was not found. So he's going through the leaders to see which tribes everybody from. Now he's at the priests and he finds these priests who are functioning as priests. And he traces their genealogy. And he can't find them. They're not Levites. Therefore were they as polluted put from the priesthood. Nehemiah was not joking. He had a vision of restoring the people of God. And he went in and, and was a true leader. And then he challenged the leaders who were oppressing the people. And then he verified, are people in the right roles? You know? Is that really the lollipop man? Should he be doing that job? Is that the job that God wants for him? And he put them out of the priesthood. Compare this to where this whole disaster really started. And you don't have to turn there, but First Kings thirteen thirty three, it began with Jeroboam in the north who corrupted the northern kingdom. And then their corruption came down into the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom followed the ways of the northern kingdom, and that's why they went into captivity. And Jeroboam, verse 33 of 1 Kings 13 says, it says this, After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again of the lowest of the people priests of the high places. So this was what Jeroboam did. He took the lowest of men. They're not Levites. They had no business. And he put them in the priesthood. Whosoever would, he consecrated him. So this was the destruction of the northern kingdom. When they allowed priests who had no business being priests. And he himself became one of the priests of the high places. So the whole leadership of the northern kingdom was false. And that's what was happening now in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah went in and said, let's check the genealogies. Get out. Whether priest or prophet or governor, whatever the role, God brings us together here in this congregation, in every congregation of the church, and not just CGI, the church, by design. God brings us together by design.
And we are brought together here now by design. Every one of us. Let's go to Romans 12, where Sister Jessica was reading earlier. And I should mention, I just want to give a a heads up to our young people. After the feast, one of the things we want to do is form a social committee and have a social calendar. And we're asking that our young people run the social committee. So you'll look after our calendar, you'll look after our events, we'll help you. But we want our young people to look after that piece. So everybody in the congregation is actively serving. Everybody's a part of this. Romans 12 and beginning in verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. And so this is what Nehemiah understood. And so he was able to rebuild the wall in 52 days. Because he understood that not everybody has to have the same function. We can distribute the work. The the work can be widely spread. And we can rebuild this wall in 52 days. So what we've done here in less than six months. I shouldn't say we. What God has done here in less than six months is because the work is widely distributed. And we're going to change gears now after the feast. We have far more work to do. We're going to double our workload. So in addition to edifying one another, we now need to preach the gospel. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And you can even take this congregationally, that every congregation might not have the same function. We are blessed here in a a particular way. And so we have a particular function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So the Jews were oppressing each other. They didn't understand this. We can't oppress each other. We can't abuse each other. We're members one of another, not just this congregation, the whole church. doesn't matter what you want to call yourself. If you're in Christ, we're all members of one body and one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So each one of us is given grace and we have different gifts. Let us use them. And it goes on then to say how we can use them. So I mentioned at the outset for one man to change his tire it took him 47 minutes. For the NASCAR pit crew they can do it in 10 seconds. Ten seconds is not the record. The record is with the Formula One. If you can Google this, a Formula One pit crew says here, a Formula One pit crew consists of a lot of crew members, and usually there's three crew members to a tire, meaning that one person is in charge of taking it off and putting back on the tire nut with an air wrench, while another crew member takes the tire off and another puts on a new tire. Uh, Teams practice pit stops, listen to this, Teams practice pit stops religiously. This is their religion. They work at it. It doesn't happen by accident. And they're doing it for a perishable crown. We are together for an imperishable crown. And they work at this religiously. If, 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 they were to, if somebody were to say, I don't know what working at this religiously means, and they were to come to our congregation, 
and see how we work together, would they understand what religiously means? We have to outperform the Formula One pit stop crew. They took a pit stop. It says here, they work at it religiously to the point where changing tires is a science that requires ultimate precision and timing. They took a pit stop because they realized the race is won in the pit stop from 10 seconds to 2.05 seconds. Formula One, in, out, in 2.05 seconds. And they are now working to break this two-second barrier. They believe they can do it in less than two seconds. That's changing all four wheels, fueling up, and doing whatever other repairs need to be done, in, out, in less than two seconds. Because they work at it religiously. What can we accomplish if we recognize the value that all of us have to each other and to the work of God? If we recognize that the walls of Jerusalem are in ruins. And here we are, called together, with an opportunity to rebuild the walls. Don't say we're small. We're not small. Not if we're committed. Nehemiah was one person. Rebuilt the wall in 52 days. Because he had commitment and a clear vision. Let's ensure that we have commitment, a clear vision. And let's be that model congregation that the church needs to be re-inspired and reconnected. Let's work fitly framed together. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.com dot org.